Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where you go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, Asia Innovation. Before we go on call, don't forget to follow our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And you can follow us for daily content for founders and investors on Twitter at InsigniaVC and Instagram at Insignia underscore VC. Now let's head into the call. In this episode, we have with us a, a, special, a special guest from a social commerce platform, Super. To any of our you know OG listeners who have been with us since the previous season, you might remember that we got to interview or talk to Stephen Wongsorejo, the co-founder and CEO of Super, who gave us a whole narrative about how they ended up building a social commerce company and their business model, the things that they're learning from comparables in China like Pintoto, and what it's like to build in, in rural Indonesia. And following this whole theme of inviting not just the CEOs and the founders, but also some of the company executives who have been with these companies for a while now, really seeing it go from zero to one and leading the different aspects of making these companies really great. And in this episode, we have the Vice President for Finance and Operations of Super. He is Garrett Jeremy Koswandi. So just a little bit on, on Garrett. He joined Steven as his chief of staff back in 2019 and began leading the finance and operations of Super that same year. Prior to that, he was also doing finance for a tech company. And before that, he was taking up his bachelor's and MBA in the Netherlands. So I think that'll be an exciting discussion to really go down into the details of what will really make social commerce work and especially in rural Indonesia. So welcome to the show, Garrett. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you for having me, Paolo. It's an honor to be here, and I'm happy that we got this chance to talk as well. And I would definitely love to show more of the underground, how has it been in Indonesia working with this such convoluted market, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Anybody who's been looking into Southeast Asia and Indonesia especially would know that Indonesia is quite complex. There are a lot of different provinces, and even within those provinces, you have a lot of different nuances that you have to to take note of to really localize. And so let's get right into it and start off by asking you, how did you get into Super in the first place? How did you meet Steven? And what made you decide to work with Steven and work on this business? Sure. So I'll give you the long story short kind of answer. I've actually started working when I was 16. And at the time, I was working with my mentor, Randy, and we started a media company at the time. And it was 2013, and we got our first angel investment round, and we've been going the company ever since then. And I was just like a high school kid, right? I was just wow. learning. Yeah, the I mean, high school and already with an angel investment for a startup. Nice. And I was like paying taxes. I, I didn't even know what taxes were, right? <laughs> we got to pay the government, right? So that was a thing back then. And after five years of working in that company, I got a scholarship to go to the Netherlands, right? So I was really sad that I had to choose whether I keep on with the company or I move to the Netherlands to finish my studies. But then again, you know, I was thinking okay, you know, you got to prioritize your studies. The business is cool and everything. It's important. But then again, you know, otherwise I get an ass kicking from my mom. So, <laughs> so yeah, your mom's another angel investor. So. <laughs> yeah. And she's been there ever since, right? You yeah, can't yeah. mess that one up. Yeah, right, right. So right. I went to the Netherlands. I finished my scholarship and then I went back home. I worked at a consulting company and I was still in touch with Randy at the time. And he was asking me a lot of questions about organization and about product development and about operational schemes. And at a point I was like, 
so why is it that we just don't work together anymore, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've been working with you since I was 16. Now I'm back here. I'm working for this company. But then again, we're still in touch and everything. So why don't we just work together? And then he was like, good idea. I'm going to have you meet Steven on the mall. So I think it was the Tuesday. I met Steven on the mall. And the thing is, just a little info about me is that my Indonesian is really bad, right? My Bahasa Indonesia is not that good. So I met up with Steven and I was talking with him in English, right? And he was confused because he was like, this guy is Indonesian. His name is Garrett. And he's talking to me in English. What's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> but then we hit it off. I think we got chemistry on that day. We played the same computer games and everything. So we talked it out. <laughs> That's a nice way and to bond. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone likes video games. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Next week or so, I started working on the company already. And over there, they weren't sure yet what kind of position I was supposed to be in. That's why they put me as chief of staff. Because as chief of staff, I'm like Steven's second hand. So I can move around between finance. I can move around between operations. And I can just start to structure the team. And at the time, we didn't have like seven departments, right? We had seven people, not seven departments. It was more about doing whatever it is that you needed to do to get the ball rolling. So I think that position was spot on at the time. And since then, I've been working with Steven and we've grown from those same seven people that I used to work with. Now they're all the head of departments for all of their own departments, right? So real happy to be here to lead the team as well, to be part of the journey. It's been awesome. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you never really left, I think, from the time that you started working with Randy. And, and just for our listeners, right? So Randy is actually the chief product officer and the co-founder as well of Nusantara Technology, which is the original company that birthed applications. Super or Super, which I mentioned earlier, the social commerce platform. So yeah, it's really interesting to know that you were working with Randy already, even as you were 16. And it seems to me, even if you did leave for the Netherlands to, to pursue your studies, it seems like you never really left. And when you came back, uh, you started working with them again. And it was just the same people, but then your team obviously grew. <laughs> Their family, that's all mm -hmm. I can say. Right, right, like right, you, right. When I was in the Netherlands, there's a couple of times when I already got to know Steven and we had a couple of calls. And when I was doing my master's in the Netherlands, I was still working for the same company. I had calls with Steven at like 3 a.m. Netherlands time, which was like 9 a.m. Indonesian time. I had this roommate, so I would get up at 3 a.m., I would open up my computer and I would start working and he would be on the other side of the room snoring. <laughs> that's the, that's the hustle. That's the hustle. <laughs> yeah. Steven was like, who's snoring? I'm like, oh, sorry, dude. <laughs> that's, my... that's horrible. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Yeah. It's really great to see that hustle that you've been doing since you were young. Really, actually a really inspiring story. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you've learned growing up with this startup as well. But I'd also like to get into your current role, which is a bit more defined than when you first came in. You're now leading up operations and finance. So maybe you could tell our listeners a bit of what a day in the life is like for you as VP for FinOps, specifically for a social commerce company like Super. Definitely. In the scope of social commerce and where I am right now, my progression was that I started as chief of staff and then I worked my way to VP of finance and now I'm VP of finance and operations, but the finance is actually interim because again, like finance and operations shouldn't be the same person for the long term of the organization, right? At the moment, I am being split more focused into operations and I'm happier if 
I get just to focus on one thing and let someone else focus on the other thing. But the thing is, working as VP of finance and operations, I think the biggest hurdle is that I have to analyze and judge my actions in a financial way. And I can't just operationally, it makes sense. This is how it's supposed to go. Like, I'm going to give you an example, right? We're expanding to a different island. So it makes sense on a financial basis that the market for the island that I'm heading to is really big up north and somewhere in the middle of the island. But the port for the logistics, it doesn't go there. You have to stop at the south of the island. These kind of complications, challenges, whether it makes sense financially to go directly to the heart of the island, but then operationally, it doesn't make sense because you need to go on the port first. And so how do you balance a decision like that is what I usually deal with on a daily basis. So the same thing also happens when I'm expanding to a different market since we're talking about social commerce, right? So what kind of super agents do I have with me at this moment? At this moment, a lot of my agents are from East Java. So if I were to expand somewhere to like the mid Java, it wouldn't make much sense in an operational basis because East Javan people and middle Java people are different people. They are different ethnicities, they have different culture. And when we're talking about social commerce, the whole idea of social commerce is that, Paolo, you know me, I know you, we're good friends, and I have this really awesome computer or whatever, and I'm gonna sell it to you, right? Because you trust me, because we're friends. It's social commerce. If the relationship is not there, then you can't have the commerce as well. But then on a financial basis, dude, it makes sense. Middle Java is close by, logistics-wise it's cheap, and the market is huge go there right but then operationally it doesn't make sense as much so balancing these two about where to expand how you approach a certain market is the key balancing point of my daily job basically yeah i think it's really great that even if in the long term definitely you want to focus more on operations and i think you really need a dedicated person focusing on finance for sure the fact that you're able to experience this seeing things from both perspectives benefits your role focusing on operations in the long term as well just as the example that you've given shows so yeah speaking of operations right i want to dig a little bit deeper into that and and the podcast that we did with Steven last year, he called Super's model of social commerce as not just social commerce per se, but social commerce with a logistics backbone. So what has been your experience building this backbone on the ground? And what's the biggest lesson that you've learned on the way? So I would say one of Indonesia's biggest problem is logistics, right? Steven might have used a different example, but I'm sure it shows the point that if you buy a carton of milk in Jakarta, and if you were to buy a carton of milk in Papua New Guinea, the price is going to be like either doubles or quadruples, right? It's crazy. Exact same, exact same example. The carton of milk, right? It's the same carton of milk, like the same brand and everything, but the price is quadrupled, right? And it's because of logistics, because Indonesia is an archipelago and we are islands. And within this island, we also have mountains every here and there. And so the terrain is definitely not flat at all. It's very challenging. And within these challenges, you have inefficiencies. You have some areas that are much more dense and they have also matured much more. So they're more developed in terms of the GDP. And then you have some areas that could be close by, which is very underdeveloped, right? 
And so the logistic costs going to approach those markets are different every time. And so this is why the backbone is very important because you can't just rely on third-party logistics because they can be the solution, but they can also be part of the problem because you have a lot of these third-party logistics that only specializes on their zone and they might be the only player there. So it's a monopoly for them. And so you have huge logistic costs over there if you want to approach it. So what we do is that we work with third parties, but we also have our backbone in-house as well that studies the market, studies the logistics, and we replicate what's working in that market. And then we replicate it into an in-house team, which then saves efficiency that could go. It depends, of course, on the area, but it could save up to 20 to 60% of costs, which is like a lot, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Do you have an experience of going into areas where even if you're not a logistics there, but because you have that logistics backbone, do you have any experience of going into a second tier or third tier city where you're the only player doing that kind of thing? Or is it pretty much covered most for most areas? You could always find a third party logistic that wants to cover that area, whether they have covered it yet or not, or they're doing it at the moment or not, but they could always just open up over there, right? But when the fact is that when you rely on them and then they're the first person that does that, then they're going to secure a really good price on your doorstep, right? <laughs> in, in a new area, I usually do work with third-party logistics, but in some cases, when I look at the third-party's logistics options are not that available, then I would start with the in-house team immediately as well. Mm -hmm. I think that really gives you a good optionality and flexibility to really execute really fast because you know when you can't afford to lose time to really find a, a good 3PL then you can actually just go to, to supers like Backbone and use that to execute speaking of, of execution we've talked about logistics but what's the next biggest challenge that you face in terms of rolling out these operations in second tier third tier cities or rural areas in, in Indonesia market approach is also very I would say niche so I'm gonna give another example even in Surabaya, which is, it's a second tier city, it's very well developed in Indonesia, but then we're very close by to an island called Madura. Geographically, it's still considered Java, but it's a whole different island. It's surrounded by its own seas, it stands on its own, and it has its own ethnicity and everything. But those Madurans kind of bleeds into Surabaya, right? And so you have a crossbreed of ethnicity between Madura and Surabayans, right? At first, when we started in Surabaya, we approached the market and we had our people go in there and we tried having commerce there and we were dumbfounded because it was pretty hard. Like, why is people not connecting with our agents? We couldn't figure it out. We kept trying until we had a different sample of super agents, which was locally homegrown in north of Surabaya, right? And... He was like the deviation when you see the, the bell curve. He was like, over there. <laughs> the outlier, yeah. What's going on there? And then we figured out that the culture in north of Surabaya is, is very loyalty-based. People that's been doing business with you, they will stick doing business with you just because they know you, just because you're friends with them and so on. And there was this instance when we had competitors coming in, conventional players, and they wanted to match our price. Usually pricing is the first thing that people attack, price dumping. The customer called our super agent and was like, hey, there's this guy coming to me and he's giving me all these promotions and whatever. Can you just promise me that next time when I buy from you, you're going to give me a bonus? 
our super agent is like, yeah, that's a done deal, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then the customer didn't buy from our competitors for that instance, right? It really comes to show that the market approach for each market is different. So that was ethnicity-based. It could be for a different market. It could be product-based. Ethnicity might not matter. They don't care, right? But they really care what kind of product you're bringing in. Are you bringing in the kind of product that I grew up with in this village? the brand that I am affiliated with, or are you bringing in a different brand that I don't know, right? So if it's something that I don't know, I'm not even going to talk to you. I'm, I'm just going to shut you down, get out of my way because you're wasting my time, right? So the market approach is very tailored. It's a tailored experience for each market. So that is what is most challenging, but it is also an entry of barrier for other people coming right, in. Right. And I mean, once you figure that out, it, it makes things a lot easier, I presume. Definitely. Although it can be quite tricky because you're not really sure whether it's ethnicity-based or product-based or there, there could be a ton of other considerations, right? And we've, we've talked about this whole logistics backbone from the perspective of the super agents, really the driving force of this whole social commerce model. But at the same time, you're also working with a lot of these brands as well, FMCG. Although you also have, or you're also planning to roll out your own white label products as well. How does the backbone look like from that end of the value chain? And how do you work with them in order to optimize, make costs more efficient, make distribution more efficient? It's super fun working in the Indonesian market. Because when I was in the Netherlands, everything is just set in stone, right? You have the suppliers, and then you have the distributors, and then you have the retailers, and that's it. That's the only chain that's there. And it's governed by the government so that there's no monopoly, and everyone is just so set in stone. But in Indonesia, anything can go, right? Anything goes. And we have a lot of suppliers. We have local suppliers. We have a village here in East Java that produces their own rice and they call their rice a greedy catfish or something, right? It works wonders in that area. So it's sort of a closed ecosystem there. I mean, specific to that to that rice product. So they, they yeah, produce yeah. the rice and then it's also sold through super as well. Yeah, that's true. So, right. okay. um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So we work together with the local rice producers. And so because what we figured out in Indonesia, the market is fragmented. There are suppliers that's working with us because they have a problem with distribution. And so they can't distribute their goods to tier three, tier four cities. And then there are suppliers that's already in tier three and tier four cities, but then they want to introduce a new product. They want to diversify their products because I'm going to go ahead with one of the examples that one of our suppliers has the problem of 80% of their sales only coming up from 20% of their channel. So their bargaining power towards their distributor is very much on the losing end on that deal. So they would really like to diversify their distribution channel much more. That's where we come in and then we start opening up this new channel, tier, tier four cities. And then we have the same case of problems with a supplier that's 80% of their GMV is reliant on only their top three products. So they need to diversify their product. And so we come in there as well. And how are we able to be a solution for them is that firstly, we operate everything through our database and every province is different and we have the data to crunch all of that. And so we can come up to them and we can tell them, hey, your product is doing very good on this region, 
these kind of people and these kind of behaviors, but it's not doing great on this area. And the reason is because it's a different brand affiliation, whatever, yada, 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 right? So you're sort of consultants for these brands as well, sort of helping them, Definitely. you know, strategize and optimize the distribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, what do you do with data? You got to turn it into information and we have that data. So the second we turn it into information and then we give it to them, they're always so happy to work with us because they usually pay people to do this kind of research for them, right? And we're just coming up, no, no, you don't have to pay us. Just give us your damn goods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that- that's a great way to really get that retention on the supply side of the equation. Speaking of data, what are the other use cases of data on your platform in terms of growing this social commerce business? Data is the blood of the company, if I would say, because the twist here is that social commerce is not an innovation. At least I wouldn't think so, because we've been doing it since the beginning of times. Like I'm friends with you and I sell stuff and so on, barter and everything. It's the same deal. But then the innovation comes in with the data with the data that I can firstly do group buying because I know there's a lot of people in the area that likes the same thing. So logistics-wise, I can have it efficient and I can have the same products delivered on a certain density point, that's data. And also how I can provide such a tailored experience for the super agents as well. What kind of person is this? What does he like? What's his repeat orders? What kind of products he usually buys? How old is he? And all that. I can mix and match those data with the correct product, the correct brand, the segmented suppliers. So I'm just connecting the two with the data. And so data is basically the 10% innovation in the social commerce game, but then it brings about the scalability of the whole industry. I think that's a really interesting point. First of all, that social commerce isn't really that new. It's new in terms of the internet economy and then using all these digital platforms, but it's also new, as you mentioned, because of the scalability of data. Now, I think we've gotten a great idea of how social commerce in Indonesia works, at least from Super's perspective. So now I wanted to know, since you guys started in 2019 and obviously coming into 2021, it's been quite the roller coaster ride. 2019, obviously getting your feet on the ground and then 2020, COVID happened. And unfortunately, the situation really hasn't abated as we'd initially hoped. So how has Super adapted to the situation and continued pushing out your services even amidst the situation in Indonesia? COVID has, I would say, a different take on our industry in comparison to a lot of other industries. And what I mean by that is that on the demand side in the FMCG world, I would say it only affects it so little, if not even positively. Sorry to say, because again, everyone is stocking up on their basic primary needs, rice and vitamin C, and they can only stay inside. They got to buy everything online. So sales wise, it's actually really good, right? But then logistics wise, again, we're always coming back to that thing. We have lockdowns, we have government roadblocks and everything. And so that's making things a lot tougher and I'm not trying to be super critical, but then again, execution is always really difficult. So the government issues that logistics company can still operate or essential companies can still operate. But then we still have roadblocks near warehousing districts. And so it's kind of a mixed communication from my side that we're supposed to still operate because again we're distributing milk and everything towards the end consumers but then there's this roadblocks and everything and we can't get there on time usually lead time is only about one day and lately there's deviation that goes up to three days and so that's a real pain bucket from 
our side, but that's just from the logistics side, right? How we solve this is again, we work together with other third-party logistics and we become kind of like a group and we help each other out on vaccinations and also on swap testing. So whenever we do encounter roadblocks, we have the proper documents to move forward. And we do have the logistics issue that we are a logistics company as well, distribute like primary goods. So you should really let us through. I guess that's from the logistics side. Another issue that's been also hampering the organization, and I think it's uh, affected a lot of Indonesians, is that health-wise, right? Some of our team are down for the count for a couple of weeks or two, and they're suffering to COVID. But the thing is, the whole team is helping out one another. Just a week ago, I dropped off uh, an oxygen tank to one of my colleagues because his brother needed it. And a week before that, one of my colleagues also gave me a recommendation for a doctor and also some medicine for my family member that was also suffering through COVID. Everyone is helping out one another at these times, but that's pretty much how COVID is affecting us on all three levels. I asked you earlier about your background with Super and that you seem to never really left the company. And even you came back, like you said, it's because like you guys are really family. And it's great to really see that come together to this crisis. And that concept of family even extends beyond the business itself and even amongst the 3PL players collaborating with each other. I also want to get into how Super manages to stay lean, right? Like I think you guys marked up tremendous growth over the past year, considering the COVID situation and considering that you guys had just started up the, the year prior. And when we asked Stephen about it in, in the podcast last year, he mentioned part of it was really about what he called wise costs, right? To keep super lean while growing fast, really being strategic about spending. So maybe you could explain that from the, the VP of FinOps perspective. And are there any new developments or learnings in terms of that approach coming into 2021? So on a lot of the spendings in super, we are very lean on that matter. And how we are able to do so is that I call it leveraging existing infrastructure. What I see a lot of other companies do is that they want something done. Let's say they want to expand to a new market. And so what they do is that they just hammer on a lot of spending for new infrastructure, new human resource and everything. And then they just hammer down on that expansion, right? So in comparison to that, what we do is that we lean on existing infrastructure. And so we don't just hammer down a new warehouse. What we do is that we go there and then we talk to one of the villagers there and we're like, hey, I'll give you 40 bucks a month if you just let me use your backyard. Is that cool? 40 bucks? You can use the backyard. And so we started using the backyard for our initial phase of expansion, right? And so we balance out the short term and the long term. And then in the short term, we use the existing infrastructure first and we keep things lean. And so with whatever existing warehousing, existing people, human resource, trucks that's already there, distribution channel that's already there, we just piggyback on those existing channels. And then once we hit scalability or economics of scale, then we invest our own networks and our own infrastructure. Because by that time, our turnover would match our investment, right? And so we keep things lean. So that's how always been the approach that I personally adopt whenever we talk about expansion or making decisions about whether we invest at this time or whether we stick with the short-term strategy and keep patching things up until we hit that scalability point. 
just to give some context to our listeners in that example, how does that compare to otherwise up your own center or buying out infrastructure? Just to give more context, if you wanted to rent a warehouse for a beginning phase, a warehouse is usually at least about 300 meters squares, right? 300 to 200 or 400 meters squares. And then you have to go through a notary to get it officialized and everything. And then you got to pay everything for an annual basis. And then there's the whole depreciation. And then you got to set up the racking and the security and all that. In comparison to just me coming down to someone that lives in a village and he owns a big plot of land because he's been there for forever. And I just come to him, hey, you're not using that part of the land, right? No? Okay, I'll give you 40 bucks. Just let me use it, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> and that's really the whole concept behind social commerce, right? Really working with the existing community, really leveraging the trust and relationships within that community to make more efficient distribution. Another follow-up question is, how do you mitigate the risks that come with working with other people or not necessarily more formal infrastructure? Because we're in social commerce, then the risk has to be qualitatively also assessed. And in that case, the person that we are talking to, uh, these people that we trust initially, are usually the village elders. They're the people that people look up to in that area. So they have a reputation going on. And not only that, but usually through recommendation, because we have super agent networks pretty much scattered around the island. And so if we needed some place, we just call up someone that's usually around this vicinity and be like, hey, do you know anyone there that we can trust for a simple backyard warehousing operation kind of scheme? Is that cool? And he would, yeah, yeah, I have an uncle that's there or something, right? <laughs> or a cousin or something. Then we'll just sign some partnership papers and that's going to be good enough. And again, not only are we assessing this risk qualitatively through those aspects, but also when we first roll things out, the volume and the scale of things is not big. We start small first. And so whatever bad thing is going to happen, let's say there's going to be rain and then the guy doesn't have a good enough roof and then something leaks and then the goods goes bad. When those things happen, then I lose about, let's say, 40 bucks of goods value for that initial phase, which is like, okay, that's fine. That's a risk worth taking for an entry point in comparison to the investment I would have to make if I didn't take that kind of risk. So those kind of approach really helps mitigate the, the risk factor. And again, I don't just do it with one guy when I start out. <clears throat> I also do it with a couple of other guys. So if anything goes wrong, it's not like all of them is going to go wrong at the same time. I would always have comparisons and I would always have different perspectives to assess the current scenario through all those different partnerships that I'm doing at the same time for that expansion. I think it's just really about avoiding concentration risk. When it comes to distribution, in a way, you guys are also investing into these communities, taking that risk in order to get an early foot in and then actually support these communities without having to wait to, to get that cash flow to actually invest in, in more formal infrastructure. But again, you do make that decision, right, over time once, um, as you said, that, uh, that turnover sort of matches the, the investment that you need. So yeah, I think that that's really great. So far, we've been going through all the details, the nitty-gritty, sharing some really great examples of, of how Super works as a social commerce company in Indonesia. But now to, to wrap things up before we head into our rapid fire round, I also wanted to get your long-term view on things, right? What excites you about Super in the next five years? I'm looking forward to break the norm of the fragmented 
Indonesia that we all know about. Long term wise, I want to be part of a company that helps consolidate Indonesia. And for now, I guess I'm hoping that I'm contributing in the part of distribution. And I think that will not only have a lasting value for the company, but also for the country as well. And as an Indonesian, that's something that I can also be proud of as well. So I'm looking forward to doing that. That's a really inspiring view of your role in Super and how it can really create an impact even to your country as a whole. And that leads me into our rapid fire round, the most important part of our podcast. I know we've been talking about serious things in the previous questions, but this time I'll ask you some quick questions and you can just answer me short and sweet answers. So are you ready, Garrett? I'm good. Let's go. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) What's the biggest misconception people have about rural Indonesia? They're poor. They're not. Uh, <laughs> They're not. I mean, if 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 Super's business is any indication, <laughs> they can spend a lot, and it's just a matter yeah. of giving get, getting them access to the goods. <laughs> you got it spot on. That's the whole business model. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's, that's Super's business model in, in a nutshell. Yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. Next question. What advice would you have? And this is something I ask only because you've been working on startups since you were in high school, right? What advice would you have for the youth in Indonesia or even in Southeast Asia? general when it comes to working in startups especially at a young age and how to really maximize the experience so it can help them long term just have the grit to do any kind of work it's an internship it's a big company it's a small company doesn't matter just have the grit to do the job and just learn because we all start from somewhere and you got to start somehow as well Right, right. Awesome. And then next question, we've all been students once and we're always learning from life. So what's the most memorable class that you've been in? I had a class called Decision Making Tools by Professor Khalid Waba. He was able to put into words statistics. He, he put statistics into a narrative so you could understand bell curves, you could understand skewness and all of that. And in a very simple layman terms about what is it to see the graph and what is the graph trying to tell you what to do and ever since until now when i look at a graph i just imagine him talking to me like what does this graph mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it must be useful for you working at uh, at finops you have to communicate a lot of data and then, then present it a lot so it must have been a really useful class for you my next question is you mentioned earlier that you and steven the ceo of super bonded over video games what what video game do you guys have you have you ever played video games with him and what video game did you did you play with him in on the first week that i met him we wanted to play PUBG at the time so PUBG was all the rage at the you know it was 2019 right 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 right. everyone is taking PUBG super seriously (laughs) like okay (laughs) my next question is what do you do to de-stress or take care of your your mental health I go to a mountain nearby, Surabaya. There's about three mountains here and I just go there. I have a staycation there and I just chill out. And you usually bring my cello as well. So um, yeah, <laughs> I'm learning the cello. So I just go there and I play every now and then. It's really neat that you have a mountain close by that you can just like quote unquote escape to when you need to. The last question for this rapid fire round, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience today? I'm hoping that once we all get vaccinated, if you guys found this podcast awesome, just shoot me up on LinkedIn or my email and hopefully we can all grab a beer soon enough. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll I'll leave uh, Garrett's email in the episode description so you can check it out. Once again, it's been quite the conversation, really fun. 
having you here on the show, Garrett, sharing all these really interesting stories, being on the ground. And that's the whole reason why we like to invite not just the CEOs and founders, but also the different executives and leaders who are day-to-day seeing the operations on the ground. So it was really great getting that perspective from you. Wish you all the best in terms of Super in the next five years and all the best to, the, to your family there in Super. Likewise, Paolo. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope everyone stays safe during these times. Yep. And we'll meet up soon enough. Then. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks, Garrett. Like a plan. Thanks, Paolo. See you. Stay on the line with us for more conversations with our founders and investors in the region. Until our next call, I am Paolo Aquino, and this has been On Call with Insignia Ventures.